It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here on first down and goal from the one is Lavelle Coppage in untouched for the touchdown. No, maybe the easiest touchdown Lavelle Coppage has ever scored. Burke looking to throw, looking in the end zone, looking for Denton, and he's got him for the touchdown. Each week, those who know Division Three football break down the weekend. There are several teams that seem to have established themselves as elite, and as we get into this postseason, it's going to be, uh, I think, pretty exciting to watch which ones emerge. I don't, I don't think we can say, okay, these two teams are, this should definitely meet in the Stag Bowl, or these four teams should definitely meet in the Final Four. I think it's going to be um, you know, pretty exciting five weeks of playoffs. From the record breakers. Well, Pat, he's been a guy who's averaged eight yards a carry all season. He's been a big play guy, and if you're a frequent listener to the podcast, you, you know this is not the first time that we've had occasion to mention Western Connecticut, Connecticut State, Octavius McCoy. It's actually his third consecutive five-touchdown game. To the surprises on the field. One just out of the blue makes me go, what the hell was that, Wartburg? Wow, congratulations. That's a heck of a way to get into the second round. To the surprises off the field. For the first time in a few years, not surprised, maybe pleasantly surprised that uh, all eight at-large teams that we projected actually got in. It, it seems to me like the NCAA actually followed their own rules correctly. You even hear from those on the sidelines. You know, we had no idea where the record set. I knew he was probably over 400. You know, just by coincidence, we were up two scores late, and uh, you know, he, he had a carry to the sideline, and I'm like, let's get him out of here. We don't want to get him hurt for next week. There is only one place to turn to, the only show that covers the entire Division Three football nation. D3Football.com's Around the Nation podcast. I don't think you, you can argue it now, Pat. You have two dominant teams at the top of Division Three. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. The ball will come out to the five-yard line. 14 seconds to go. Melanson, they got a coach on the field. Melanson, and we got a penalty flag down after the snap. With 6.8 seconds to go, that should end the football game with a 10-second runoff. And it sure did for the second week in a row. We had a, a crazy ending to a game. We had a great ending to a game in Massachusetts. If you are a Tufts fan and a great end to a uh, long losing streak and a couple of other long losing streaks ended as well here in uh, week three of the 2014 Division Three football season. As Dave mentioned, I'm Pat Coleman, joined by Keith McMillan. And uh, Keith, first of all, the crazy one, the way in which that game ended um, you know, if if you people who have a go chance uh, to go out and see the video, if you go to Texas Lutheran site, get the uh, on-demand archive, go pretty much right to the four-hour mark and and watch the end, or just see the photo that we have posted on the site, and I think that's the one that we use here on the podcast page as well. Just how does that happen? Craziness at the end of a game, and in the excitement of uh, of of trying to win, trying to figure out a, uh, how are you going to get that last playoff? And obviously, uh, Coach Dunn you know, lost track of where he was or or wasn't paying attention, and uh, it was so concerned. I think with getting that call out to uh, out to his quarterback that he ran out literally uh, almost to the hash mark, past the numbers, and uh, the the where the referee is is standing. It was sort of 
behind the quarterback. So the referee's looking right at the two of them and has to throw the flag at that point. The 10-second runoff, of course, happens when a team is out of timeouts. And so Texas Lutheran, uh, excuse me, Louisiana College at that point has a chance, you know, to, to snap the ball inside the five-yard line, take a shot into the end zone, but no timeouts left, the 10-second runoff. And one of, the, one of those endings, Pat, where... You know, as many years as you watch football, you think you've seen it all, and then you see something like that. Of course, the coach's box and the, the team box ends at the 25-yard line. He's run 15 yards down the field, and then, yeah, as you said, out beyond the uh, beyond the numbers, all the way out almost to the hash marks. You know, that's a that's a good 20 to 25-yard run. Uh, if you're the official at that point, you have no choice. You can't not throw the flag. It is he's practically in the huddle. He's he's lined up. You know. As another split back, practically behind Easton Melanson, it's just you can't, you can't, uh, you can't not call that. And and not only that too, he's actually affecting the outcome of the game. It's not, uh, you know, well, th- this is a situation where where somebody's on the field and and literally yelling at the quarterback, "Hey, this is what I want you to do. Make sure you don't spike the ball." I guess we should back it up a step and sort of explain what the situation was. Louisiana College is trailing Texas Lutheran uh, 38-32. They're at home. They get the ball on their 26-yard line. They drive down the field. They get to a, a point uh, where it's a third, third and, uh, and goal. And uh, the, play, the play, you know, nobody in the end zone is open. So Melanson takes the dump off to his running back, Aaron Cooksey. Uh, a little bit of a swing pass kind of out. And, and he gets swarmed around the five-yard line by Texas Lutheran defenders. So it wasn't like he had a chance to get out of bounds and stop the clock. He, he really was, he was swarmed. And he's also trying to scoot into the end zone and win the game at that point. So he gets tackled at the, at the two. And uh, Coach Dunn comes running out on the field. And as you're watching this video, the audio is a little, uh, un, a little behind the video. It's not quite synced up. But if you watch it, you know, it, 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 it doesn't take too long for you to figure out uh, what's going on? He r- runs out onto the field, like like we said, between the numbers and the hash mark. And the situation is, he's, he it's it's fourth down. They're out of timeouts. Time is running out, and so Coach Dunn is trying to tell the quarterback, "Don't spike it. You'll run a play." And and the the way they explain it, if you go to the Louisiana College website, they have the the post game quotes, and uh, the way Melanson explains it is that. He, you know, he ran up the line thinking he's going to spike it because it's a situation. And then he realizes it's fourth down and they have an automatic call for that, that they're just going to all run uh, patterns into the end zone and he's going to try to throw it. So I think if, if Coach John hadn't run onto the field, the quarterback uh, was going to figure it out, try, try to take a shot in the end zone. No guarantee they would have won the game, but certainly they wouldn't have lost it on a 10 second runoff. Yeah, I'm just going to read off uh, Coach Dunn's quote here out of that. We were out of timeouts. He was running up to spike it, and it was fourth down, Dunn said. We could not spike it at that point. I was just trying to get his attention to not spike it. He was going to spike it and game over. It was an end-of-the-game situation where you practice those things, but you never think they're going to come back to bite you. I would say this too, Keith. You know, I, uh, I, I talked to Coach Dunn as I did the uh, other American Southwest Conference coaches uh, for kickoff this year. And, you know, we were talking about uh, after, you know, the, the meat of the conversation is done, just kind of running down their schedule. And, and I was telling them, you know, you could be seven and three this year, just like last year. You could be the, you know, fifth or sixth best team in the country, and we would never know it because they played Alcorn State. Uh, they've done that already. You know, that's an FCS school, obviously. And they have Wesley and Mary Harden Baylor coming up in back-to-back games, sandwiched around a bye week coming up in uh, October. They could very easily be, you know, a top 10 team and not really uh, know it. Now they're going to be lucky to finish 6-4 uh, uh, the way the rest of this 
season rolls on. It's just a, a a team that could be really, really good, but we have no way of knowing, and they may not make the playoffs. Well, well Pat, you know that's the realist approach, but but the optimist hey, approach that's is a, that's what I got to do, right? Yeah, the, the optimist approach is they do have a way of knowing. It means they have they have to beat Mary Harden Baylor, win their conference, uh, beat Wesley, maybe catch some national attention. But the, the, you're right in the sense that they really had to have this one, and they were so close to having it. And the thing that surprised me about the post game quote, and I, you know, I wasn't there for for this post game, so he may have come out and and initially taken responsibility. But the one quote that we get to read in that story is is the coach explaining his thought process, but not really saying, "Hey, look, that that's on me. That's a mistake that I shouldn't make in that situation." You know, Coach Dunn is a highly successful coach. He was he was successful in high school before he took the Louisiana college job, and he t- took that program basically from its infancy to a, a, a team that's made the postseason now in D three and in his perennially knocking on the door. So, you know, he knows what he's doing. He, he's not, it's not like he's a first year coach or a guy that's never been in charge before or anything like that. And uh, I know, I'm sure nobody feels worse about doing that than he does than making the mistake and costing the kids a, a shot at winning the game. No guarantee they complete the pass into the end zone, but I'm sure he feels terrible about it. But it also, um, to me, I would have liked to see, and, and maybe this is buried out there somewhere, him say, um, yeah, I should. I, I shouldn't have done that. That's my fault. I cost my kids the game, and so on and so forth. That was the uh, that was the crazy ending to a game. Uh, if we have the uh, fantastic ending to a game, which you heard at the beginning of this uh, podcast as well, that was the cheering. That's the sound of the end of a thirty-one game losing streak as Tufts defeated Hamilton on Saturday. The last team they beat was Hamilton back in 2010. Jay Savetti has been the head coach there now for uh, all of this uh, losing streak, basically, or at least uh, three full years of it. And now he's got his team. Uh, it gets a chance to come out and, uh, and, and put a W in that left-hand column for the first time in a while. And, and that's a big deal, uh, you know, when you're when you're trying to revive a program and at least get it back on on good footing. You know, it's hard to to go out and recruit each year and sell zero and eight, and say, you know, you're selling hope at that point. You're saying, but you know, it's going to happen for us. We just got to put a couple of good recruiting classes together. And it, you know, it's it's also tough when you're when you're the NESCAC and in you know, you, the the level of kids you're recruiting, you know, they're coming there for, for the academics not and just hoping they could also play football as well. So it, it, it's really nice to see. And, and we saw it a bunch of times this weekend, Pat, teams who have been struggling for more than a season get those W's. Yeah, and we will talk about more of those as we move on here through the Around the Nation podcast. Uh, but before we get to some of those, uh, I've got a game ball to give out, which is completely kind of at the opposite end of everything that we've talked about so far, and also really geographically, as uh, Brian Peterson of Whitworth goes 59 for 83 passing for 589 yards, six touchdowns, no interceptions as Whitworth defeats uh, Laverne by the score of 50 to 48. You know, you may hear those numbers. Those are some pretty big numbers. Obviously, the uh, total number of passing yards isn't a record because we know where that is set. That's set comfortably at uh, 700 and uh, I forget how many because I was only there a couple years ago. But uh, the two records that were set, one is for the uh, most completions in a game. That's the 59. And then 83 passes without an interception. That's a record that Justin Peary from Westminster of Missouri, who you may remember from uh, if you were around when uh, D3Football.com started, he was an All-American quarterback for the Blue Jays. Uh, he had a, uh, a, a similarly 
impressive game without an interception. But for Whitworth, I want to talk about two. This is a pretty good uh, start to the season for them and obviously a good start to the uh, head coaching career. Yeah, absolutely. And if that conference becomes, you know, now with Pacific on the rise, with if Whitworth is competitive again, and if it's a year where Willamette's good, then you also have, you know, Linfield and, and Pacific Lutheran being perennially good. You have a five-team race in a, in a much more interesting conference. And there's a, a potential spillover effect whenever you get uh, two West Coast teams in the play. Well, you'll, you'll get three West Coast teams, you know, in, in uh, the past couple seasons, Linfield and PLU get matched up against each other in the, in the first round. But if you get to a situation where we have a lot of good teams out West, um, uh, very far out West, it could be interesting as far as uh, playoff matchups. Yeah, so good start for Rod Sandberg, his team 3-0. Uh, you know, they've played Lewis and Clark, they've played Whittier, and they've played Laverne, so not the, uh, the top competition on their schedule but they'll find out a little bit more when they host Chapman coming up next week and and you know Chapman was a team that that uh, lost last week to Linfield by seven points and it was a game we thought would be a, a pretty good game and it turned out to be one so yeah the the level of competition is about to jump for Whitworth but I, yeah I the eye-popping number from that stat line Pat to me was definitely the 83 passes and the uh the, the no interceptions which is just insane to think about I mean you know, your quarterback's going to have to ice the arm down after 83 passes, and somebody's done more than that. All right, I got a game ball to give out too, Pat, and it, it goes to more than one person. It goes to the whole John Carroll defense, which uh, this was a matchup this week against Heidelberg, 16th-ranked team in the country against number 10, I believe. And uh, total offense, final number actually was 259 for Heidelberg, but the last drive for Heidelberg was a two-play 99-yard drive. Cartel Brooks broke off a 94-yard run, so he ended up with decent numbers on the day, but you take away that last drive, which more than likely came against a number two defense, and uh, John Carroll held Heidelberg, one of the top 25 teams in the country, uh, to 160 yards total offense, and this is now the second year in a row where this, this has been a big game coming in, and John Carroll's completely dominated Heidelberg. Final score was uh, 43-16. Last year, it was 48-7. So John Carroll, for some strange reason, owns Heidelberg. And the the offensive numbers are going to be pretty eye-popping. Of course, there was that doubt that uh, that quarterback, Mark Myers, would even play on Saturday. Uh, he did play 28-41, 392 yards, four touchdowns, one interception. He completed passes to 10 receivers. And those are the numbers we usually focus on. But I wanted to give my game ball to that defense. Yeah, and you know, whatever injury he did uh, suffer in the preseason, they didn't need him against St. Vincent in week one. They had the bye in week two, so you could give him a, a couple of weeks off, and he comes out and has a uh, has a great game on Saturday. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you. I'm sure that Brooks's run was against the twos, if not the threes, with a uh, what would have been, let's see, a five-touchdown lead or so with four minutes to go. I feel pretty good about that. And Cartel Brooks, I mean, here's the other thing. To that point, he'd only had eight carries not mm-hmm. only did he only have 22 yards, but he only had eight, had eight carries. They weren't even running him out there at that point. Yeah, yeah. He finished the day nine for 116. Brian Lacey, their, their other back who they like to get a bunch of touches, he had 11 carries for 38 yards. Um, so they, they did not have a good day uh, at all. Pass either running the ball. Each they had two quarterbacks who played. Uh, each of them threw for fifty-one yards. So there, there wasn't much going on for the Heidelberg offense. And now the the John Carroll. Uh, Our time went uh, up. Yeah, I I was not expecting the uh, the <laughs> alarm to go off. 
we're going to move along with uh, a team on the rise. And for me, I think that's Delaware Valley's got a chance to move up a little bit. Uh, you know, they're undefeated. They uh, they did have a bye week, so they're only 2-0. and But they beat Wilkes by the score of 54-35. Here's what's interesting, of course, is that Delaware Valley obviously struggling a little bit on defense uh, this year and had a real uh, hard time on Saturday just getting off the field. Remember we talked last week about Rose Holman, 114 yeah. plays on offense. Took him three overtimes to do so. Wilkes ran 113 in regulation, and uh, that is the uh, Division Three record. Gustavus Adolphus had that before. They had run, I think, 112 in a regulation game back in the 80s. Wilkes, uh, of course, they only score 35 because they lost by 19. They were 11 of 24 on third down. First of all, 24 third down conversion attempts, 524 yards of total offense. So uh, Delval had a little bit of trouble getting off the field but uh, on defense. But when they did... Uh, Delaware Valley offense was led by Chris Smallwood, 20 carries for 100 or for 213 yards and six touchdowns, a, uh, a pretty big game uh, for him, obviously, and something that will merit some pretty significant team of the week consideration. But uh, Del Val, I think they're a team that uh, after not having gotten votes in the first couple polls is someone who's uh, going to this week, even if it ends up only being me on my ballot and I won't give them 16 points. Uh, as far as teams rising up the pole, I think John Carroll is going to make a move this week. Obviously, going up, Heidelberg is going to drop down. Texas Lutheran, we mentioned, they've been getting votes, and I think they may creep into the top 25. If not this week, we, we could see that coming uh, soon down the line here, but they're definitely going to pick up some votes. I think just not not just having a win over a fairly decent program, but also an, an attention-grabbing win. But how about North Central? They're already pretty high up in the poll. But uh, they beat Platteville pretty handily on Saturday, 28-7. I thought they probably, you know, as far as defensive game balls, there were a handful of teams that played great defense on Saturday. John Carroll was one. Wesley was another. Ithaca. Uh, Simpson was was one. Uh, and North Central was right up there with them, uh, only giving up a touchdown in the third quarter to, to Platteville and otherwise pretty much controlling that game, I think. You know, North Central was maybe hovering kind of lower around the the 10 mark on my ballot, uh, kind of living off last year. You know, I'm not sure how much they are able to, to reload. You know, they, they are kind of an elite program and you figure they'll, they'll be pretty good again, at least within their conference and, you know, maybe a round or two in the playoffs. But uh, but that was a very convincing victory on Saturday against Platteville. And now I'm starting to think maybe they are back within that top six or seven teams in the country. Yeah, and I think we find the ceiling for Platteville, right? I mean, Platteville has hit this spot at North Central a couple times, obviously in the last uh, game of last season for for Platteville, and then here early on in this season, right? I think that uh, you know Platteville, pretty good, probably the second best team in the uh, WIAC this year, but just not good enough to be someone who's going to advance deep enough in the playoffs if they can't get past North Central and really can't be competitive with North Central. Uh, that twenty-one nothing in the first quarter really made it difficult for them to get back in the game. Yeah, absolutely. And and then you look ahead for them, just like we looked ahead for, for um, Louisiana College. It's, uh, you know, you got Whitewater in the conference schedule. Oshkosh, hard to know what to make of them because they haven't played D3 opponents so far. So it, it's not an easy road from here on out. And if you end up as a 8-2 and two Platteville team, and that's if everything else goes correctly and, and they just lose this to North Central and Whitewater, kind of that same point that you made, Pat, where they could be a, a very good team, but they just lose to to really elite top, you know, five to top 10 teams and, and Platteville may not be quite that level. 
my team that's heading downward this week. You know, not somebody who was going to get votes or somebody who had been getting votes, but very surprised to see LaGrange go to Greensboro and lose 37-35. A game, uh, you know, first of all, Greensboro, who's uh, really struggled uh, this year. They've played, uh, they lost to... Methodist and they lost to Guilford and you know we think Guilford's pretty good from the looks of it Methodist uh has been you know has had a good game and a bad game right so uh I I felt that uh, I kind of thought that LaGrange would be in a position to go on the road and and really be dominant in this game because I really felt that LaGrange and Methodist probably were fairly evenly matched at the very least on the offensive side uh they face off October 18th at LaGrange uh, I have this kind of penciled in on my calendar as a game I might be interested in going to, but you know, just to see the uh, the offensive firepower of the uh, Mummy offense versus the Methodist offense. Uh, but you know, if if things continue to go into a tailspin, let's just say I didn't book my tickets tonight like I might have. Gotcha. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna. I'll we'll be dropping Illinois Wesleyan. That that's my team, uh, number yeah. 21 in the poll this week. Uh, certainly a team that I, I was uh, had had been voting for um, uh, over Wheaton, which is you know a lot of times Wheaton is one is one of those teams um, because they don't they don't play really good teams early in the season. You kind of wait for them to get into the CCIW schedule, or at least I do before I make a judgment on them. Illinois Wesleyan, though, that's a big stumble. Uh, not not necessarily losing. Uh, to to Simpson, but also to the, the way they lost. You know, they they had 357 yards of offense, so it wasn't like they were totally shut down. But to only get three points out of that, they had three turnovers. But Simpson had three turnovers as well. Uh, the Storm wins that game 13-3. That's probably, I guess, your big top 25 upset of the day. You know, we had those those couple inter top 25 clashes but uh but that was the only the only time where a team from way outside the top 25 came in and beat a top 25 team and i don't think we'll see uh iwu ranked when the poll comes out yeah and you know those other games uh number 10 beat number 16 which is supposed to happen right and uh in the other one it was again the higher ranked team winning when uh when uh, number five North Central beat number seven Platteville. So I, I think that uh, chalk prevailed everywhere, but that one game, oh, so close on the chalk. Well, uh, <laughs> we may mention that again later. But if you didn't, go back. If, if we don't, go back and read Triple Take. Uh, because if you're on the blog page, it's not hard to find. Um, and for those of you, by the way, who download and listen to the podcast uh, without ever visiting the site, that's cool. That's awesome. I got some preliminary numbers, although I've been trying to get more in-depth from the folks who host uh, the podcast server, and they said that there were 7,000 downloads of podcasts after the week one uh, release, so we were very happy to hear that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast, and we, like I said, we hope you still like it, and now I'm rambling, so i got to stop. Moving on to uh, something a little bit more off the beaten path, I thought uh, it was interesting, you know, we talked a little bit Last week, I believe, and I think the week before both, we may have talked, even if we didn't talk on the podcast, I think Keith, you and I talked about how uh, Franklin and Marshall, uh, you know, didn't, uh, you know, first of all, they, they beat Lebanon Valley the first week. You know, now we think maybe differently of Leb Valley at 0-3. Um, and then they lost big to Muhlenberg in week two. And here, Ursinus, first of all, scores 21 points in the second quarter. Then uh, Franklin and Marshall comes back. Ursinus has to kick a field goal to send the game into overtime, and they win in OT with a uh, Max DiNardo interception on uh, in overtime to beat FNM 31-24, and the Bears are undefeated at 3-0. 
Yeah, little, not too much of a surprise, but certainly uh, something of a surprise. I'm going to stay in, in Pennsylvania for, uh, for my off the beaten path highlight. How about Misericordia winning by 35? Yeah. Now, this is, this is a team that uh, the Cougars, who that's just their second win in program history. This is their third, third season playing uh, in, in the MAC. And they, they lost their opening game 55 0 against Utica. Um, lost at Wilkes last week 41 7. So, right, you know, they're, they're coming into this game. What, 96 7 is their deficit? Really nothing to be excited about. They end up uh, beating Florham 35 0 on Saturday. How bad is Florham? Well, yeah, and, and so, yeah, turn back around and kind of reevaluate, right? Florham, close loss to College of New Jersey. College of New Jersey loses to Whitewater 48 to nothing. Uh, of course, TCNJ ties into Ursinus, who we just talked about. So, you know, there's a lot of t- places where that happened this week, and we're not going to get to talk about all of them, but places where we originally evaluated a game one way, and now after those teams have played one and two more or two more games, you really got to go back and reconsider is that team as good as A, we thought it was in August, or B, as good as we thought that team was back on, say, you know, the 8th of September. And, you know, sometimes those week one wins look a heck of a lot different, even in week three, let alone weeks nine and 10. Yeah, it would be no fun, though, if 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 everything was chalked the entire season. What? Uh, no, no disrespect. And uh, if, you know, if we could if 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 we could predict and kick off, it'd be kind of cool to do that one year, maybe just a nail like one to two forty four perfectly. But, you know, it'd be no fun if there were no upsets and, and no surprises. It would be a great selling point. I didn't take the chalk thing personally, uh, except that I, you know, I went to San Francisco this week for work and I got a lot of sun. I don't look anything like uh, chalk in that sense of the word. So I just. Well, also, and also, too, that is kind of thinking outside the box. You know, there are some weeks where you just don't see a, a, a top 25 upset from from the games there. And, and as you mentioned, you came pretty close. So uh, we don't we don't knock it. We just like to have a little fun with triple take. I wanted to see a a couple of surprising games, one of which could have qualified as off the beaten path, too, because it really is. When you think about Norwich beating WPI 10 to 7, you know, maybe doesn't uh, ring a bell for a whole lot of people. Uh, It is, uh, you know, a um, five seconds left in the game. Norwich kicks a 22-yard field goal to win it. This puts Norwich at 2-1, and one, uh, all three games against the Liberty League. And we have, again, uh, I'll just mention again, because uh, we've mentioned it a, a couple of times previously, we kind of took these uh, lower-level conferences in New England to task for not playing outside of their little group. You know, the NEFC, the ECFC, and the MASCAC played a lot of cross-conference games against each other, and that's no way to get better when uh, you're talking about teams who, when when Keith and I are doing 1-244 to in uh, the middle of August, you know, we're pretty much eliminating most of those teams in the bottom 50-60 to 60 teams. But Norwich went out. Uh, you know, Norwich used to be a member of the Empire 8, used to be at the bottom of the Empire 8 on a fairly regular basis, but here, you know, they opened up 2-1 and one against the Liberty League, uh, they've beaten St. Lawrence. They beat WPI, lost to RPI. You know, if they played no other games the rest of the season, you know, you could think of them as a middle of the pack team in the Liberty League. And that might put them in a position where if they run the table in the uh, ECFC the rest of the way, obviously they haven't played a single conference game yet. And I understand that um, they might not get offered up to the best available team within 500 miles in the first round of the playoffs, which would be, you know, a nice bonus. Yeah, it's nice to not lose 66 to nothing, right? Absolutely. I just uh, drew those randomly, those numbers randomly, honestly. 
Sure you did. Sure you did. Hey, hey speaking of, of losing big, uh, St. Vincent in week one lost to John Carroll 44 nothing. And as you mentioned a few minutes ago, sometimes you look at that week one result and you reevaluate it. That's, that's my uh, surprising result of the week. St. Vincent beating Case Western Reserve yeah. 23-20. They rallied from, from down 2010 midway through the third quarter. So it wasn't a, wasn't a fluky victory at all. They had to dig deep for that one. Uh, St. Vincent in the first couple of weeks, I mentioned the John Carroll loss. They also lost uh, at Waynesburg 35-24 last week. And, and I just didn't see, you know, I didn't see this one coming, I guess. And, and you know, St. Vincent, after going 6-5 uh, and five in 2011, they went 0-10 the past two seasons, and, and you didn't see anything really in the first two weeks to, to give you an indication that, that uh, any kind of wins were coming over, over pretty good programs, much less uh, you know, a, a, a nice surprising comeback. So uh, I have to tip the hat to St. Vincent there and uh, call that my most surprising result so far this week. End of a 23-game losing streak for the Bearcats and the first win in the head coaching career of Ron Dolciato, who came over from John Carroll, and I hope I pronounced that correctly. I was trying to pronounce it Italianly because, you know, that was my goal there. Um, Stat of the week. (laughs) Stat of the week was brought to my attention via Twitter on Saturday evening. Uh, came by way of Todd Bunyejo of Gallaudet, who points out, albeit in kind of a snarky and inappropriate way, that the Gallaudet offense hasn't scored uh, since Todd got injured and subsequently gave up the sport, and his brother Ryan, who was a running back, left the program as well. Uh, Gallaudet lost to Shenandoah 20 to nothing in its opener, and then lost to Rochester 30 to 2 this week. I will point out that uh, I, uh, I gave him a bit of a hard time about it on Twitter, and he ended up deleting that tweet. But uh, Bonyejo, you may remember, he got injured uh, late in the game against SUNY Maritime. I think I didn't properly reset that counter but i'll try to go fast now and then uh did not play in the uh, playoff loss to hobart in which they lost 34 to 7 so they really have struggled without him at the helm and he is focused on staying healthy and playing basketball for what that's worth but uh yeah gallaudet with a uh, a really big uh, turnaround from middle of the pack in uh, division three terms back down to what's looking like they could be near the bottom although again also they haven't played a conference game yet either Pat, for a stat of the week, you mentioning something that happened on Twitter reminded me that I had favorited a couple tweets on Saturday that uh, that I wanted to to consider for stat of the week. And so even though I picked a stat, a stat of the week, I should mention these ones. Uh, Go for it. Harden Simmons, Ryan Lewis, four sacks and a 97-yard uh, touchdown on a fumble return. Uh, that one is from HSU Athletics, so that's a pretty nice day down there at Harden Simmons. Um, Texas Lutheran, one of the keys to that victory. We talked about the the crazy finish, but we didn't talk about uh, the the way Texas Lutheran won that game. Uh, 290 rushing yards and uh, and holding Louisiana College to 83. Both of those were were from tweets from the official school account. So we do pay attention to that stuff on Saturdays, especially if it's hashtag D3FB, because all you do is hit that hashtag, and it's it's like a nasty national channel where you can just watch D3 results from coast to coast coming in. Uh, I, I thought this would have been a cooler stat, I guess, if uh, if Averett had won or come close to winning. Uh, they actually lost 40-17 to to Maryville, but Travis Jones returned a kickoff 90 yards for a touchdown and a punt 75 yards for a touchdown in the first half of that game. You know, kickoff and punt return touchdowns are rare, and it's got to be super rare for a guy to do uh, one of each in uh, in the same game. So that's uh, that's consideration for a stat of the week. Oh, 
Better nominate him for uh, Team of the Week, Averett, or USA South uh, Athletic Conference front office because uh, I really like returns for a touchdown, and when you got one of each, I, I, I'd be interested to see the line from a return guy who's better than that. We typically talk about the best predictions and the worst predictions. In some weeks, there's more of one versus the other. Um, you know, me being a Minnesotan, I don't like to, you know, it's just not in our nature to say nice things uh, to compliment ourselves. So I thought, Keith, maybe we'd do it this way. Why don't I say something nice about one of your predictions, and then you can say something nice about one of mine. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, we shouldn't leave uh, Ryan tips out either if oh. he nails nails one of those predictions. Okay, we should go look for those. Uh, meanwhile, <laughs> I thought your best prediction from Triple Take was you, uh, you were pretty specific. You said Middlebury struggles and pulls away. Uh, and then Wesleyan pulls away in a in the NESCAC opener. And even though that's a close game on paper, uh, Middlebury did have a touchdown in garbage time, uh, and I thought that uh, that made that game a lot clo- uh, look a lot closer than it really was. So that's my take on your takes. Uh, all right. Well, Ryan, um, under which team won't necessarily have a great season, but will have a great week. He picked Del Val, and, and they uh, even though they got 113 plays run on them, they they won by 19 points, as you point, pointed out earlier. So that's a, a fairly solid prediction. And uh, you, I believe, didn't you nail the Tufts pick? No, I uh, exactly oh. unnailed the Tufts pick. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. I, I got to read my notes a little more closely. There was a lot of Tufts we're talking about. That, that was not a spot for it, I don't think. Stevenson was the one you had that that was a good pick. Am I right? I felt pretty good about that anyway. All right. Yeah, Stevenson, uh, they beat Lebanon Valley. Again, got to reevaluate, reeval Lebanon as their 0 3. But uh, Stevenson's uh, got some pretty tough opponents coming up for their next five games against Albright, Lyco, Delval, and Widener. So. Uh, I think uh, FDU form is sandwiched in there as a bit of a breather. But, you know, for Stevenson, remember, this is a program in year four, and we like those year four programs Pacific last year, Christopher Newport back in 2000 and something. So, um, you know, this could be a year to keep an eye on the Mustangs is all I'm saying. Yeah, and it's a good reasoning. It's solid because a lot of times the first couple years of a program, you're playing freshmen and sophomores. Those guys get a lot of time on the field, and by the time they have 20, 25 games of experience heading into that senior year, they're uh, they're they're pretty. It's a pretty solid team, and it's a pretty cohesive group. They know each other well. They fight for each other. So uh, you do see that that bump in year four, and then and then we watch you again in year five to see uh, was that just a one time thing, or or is that program really gonna gonna grow and be consistently good? So uh, Stevenson. And Middlebury were our good predictions. Delval was uh, was Ryan Tipp's good prediction. Let's move on to the bad predictions. We had a few. Uh, yeah. So I picked Hartwick to um, let's see Hartwick and Ithaca to be surprisingly close, which it really, really wasn't. And you mentioned Tufts, and you were trying to be nice, but of course I got Tufts wrong. Yeah. Well, I uh, I picked the the case. Quarterback Billy Beecher to have his breakout game against St. Vincent. Obviously, St. Vincent uh, won that game, and, and Beecher didn't play all that well. Less than 200 yards uh, passing, and he had had a 300-yard game the week before. And I thought, man, you're gonna, you know, get St. Vincent coming up. You could pour that thing on. Same, same logic, kind of for for Hartwick. They'd put up. Uh, a huge passing game in week one, then had a huge rushing game from from Greg Bell last week, and you figured that offense was was uh, was playing pretty well. Hartwick beat Ithaca last year, so it's not one of those situations where you're like, well, Hartwick's just putting up big numbers against bad teams, and then you then you play a legit team like Ithaca, and and, and it's not even close. Uh, but Saturday wasn't even close, forty-two-seven, 
Ithaca. That's one of the teams who's uh, who, who played great defense on Saturday, shut down uh, both the passing game and uh, and running game for Hartwick. So uh, got made fun of a little bit on Twitter for that, and deserve, deserve it. I, I watched a good portion of that game because it was an early game. Uh, Greg Bell finishes with eight carries for 13 yards. I, you know, the, I watched a good stretch of the second quarter, and he just wasn't. They weren't even using him. The game was close. It was uh, uh, fourteen nothing, um, and they just were not giving him the ball. Yeah, I, I, obviously, uh, he had fifty-one carries last week. Uh, you know, you could st- still be a little banged up from that potentially. But a lot of times, coaches too, they go they they go in with a specific game plan because you see something against a team um, that that you think is going to work and. You know, sometimes maybe looking back at it after the fact, you you overdid it. You know, you tried to force something that that wasn't there, and I, clearly wasn't a whole lot there either in in the running game or the passing game against Ithaca. So again, we tip the hat to the Bombers defense. That's a team that's you know hovering around the the bottom part of the top twenty five. That's going to start moving up if they keep playing that well. Right. Moving on to the lightning round. Um, I can't believe we really haven't talked about the Wesley Rowan game. You know how I hate to use cliches, especially here on the show, but you think uh, I really think there's no love lost between these two teams. No, no. Uh, 15 penalties for Wesley, which seems like it could be their, uh, their, their Achilles heel this season because they have a really great defense, great quarterback, great wide receiver. Uh, you know, developing running back and they're actually, you know, using more than one running back. So they have kind of all the tools. The lines look pretty good, at least when I saw them back in week one against Thomas Moore. And that seems to be their only uh, thing that that could that could mess them up today. They held Rowan to 106 yards of total offense and they somehow won 37-7 with, uh, you know, 15 penalties for I was like 128 or 48 yards. Ridiculous, ridiculous amount of penalties. I, I found it interesting this week. We wrote about them in Around the Mid-Atlantic. Uh, one of the photos that the Wesley folks sent us was uh, Amir Petros and Sasan Kapapula, uh, the two of the star players on defense. Kapapula is like pointing at somebody like he's uh, like he's mouthing off at somebody. He's like, yeah, this is really kind of what that team could be about. Or you talk about the penalties and it's not the first time. Yeah, and and you know I know Coach Drass after Week One was was concerned about that and and sat some of the some of his players down and and uh, you know said he, he basically you got to get your head on straight because we got a we got a pretty good team here and and this is you, you know if you don't act like a um, a leader out there on the field you know you you can mess things up for your team and and yeah I hate to say this because I love watching Wesley but that's been a theme over the years with that team that sort of uh and you can get away with that maybe certain weeks early in the season not saying that they've played any easy games because thomas moore rowan and salisbury usually three pretty good teams but you're not gonna be able to get away with that as you get deeper into the playoffs and you can't have sort of big giant weaknesses we're gonna go down to the uh, 42nd play clock here for the rest of this lightning round to try to get us uh, and keep us under that 45 minutes. We're not going to be there this week. Uh, let's see. Rose Holman. Hey, overtime again. Hey, look at that. Another big win for them. You know, and the amazing thing about both these, uh, I think both the wins are double overtime, is that they came back from down 19-3, I believe, last week to Illinois College. And uh, on Saturday against Hanover, they were down 28-7, came back to tie that game at either 28 or 35 going into uh, overtime and then won it in uh, double overtime. Uh, yeah, uh, triple overtime last week, double overtime uh, this week. 
Let's see. Uh, we talked about a couple of uh, long losing streaks ending. I don't know if we talked about Allegheny. They'd lost 11 in a row. Uh, Nichols had lost 10 in a row. They beat Becker. Allegheny beat Hiram, who was last week's surprise team. Yeah, and and the cool thing I guess about Allegheny and in the same situation with Tufts is uh, they they the Allegheny last win came uh, in the last week of November 2012, so they hadn't won in more than than one season, but they beat Hiram again. So now, once you break that losing streak, now you want to see can they beat somebody or do, or do they just have this one team's number? Same thing with Tufts. Uh, the last win was Hamilton back in 2010. They beat Hamilton today. Are they going to win any other NESCAT games or do they just have Hamilton's number. Uh, uh, we got Keith for a delay of game. They're just barely. A couple of interesting uh, results and uh, cross-conference stuff. Uh, Endicott beating Kane, Austin beating Occidental. These are games, uh, results we would not have expected to see five years ago. Yeah, and, and I guess that's you know what what's cool about them. There weren't a whole lot besides the ones we've already highlighted in the podcast that stood out. I, I like Austin winning out at Occidental. That's a pretty significant road trip from from Texas out to California. How about uh, speaking of significant road trips, uh, Whitewater in a bus to the College of New Jersey. And we heard the saw the players complaining about it on the way home. But they did come back with their 18th consecutive win and they shut out TCNJ while they were there. Yeah. And, and you know, for Whitewater, that's got to be interesting because when they fly during the postseason, uh, you know, NCAA picks up that tab and they're probably used to traveling, you know, either a lot of bus trips in Wisconsin or long flights during the playoffs. But uh, but this was a you know early season game and they go to New Jersey, which is totally unfamiliar to them. I'm trying to think about, uh, let's see, all the way across uh, Pennsylvania just in itself is like six hours. Um, it's only another 10 minutes or so to get across the border into New Jersey. But then you're talking about four hours or so through Ohio, three and a half through uh, through Indiana. Who knows what the Chicagoland traffic looks like, but it'll probably be late at night when they get there. That's a pretty long trip. Uh, I've driven trips like that, and it ain't fun. Guilford in Southern Virginia, Salem Stadium, got a, a D3 game on uh, Saturday, but there weren't a lot of people there to see it. Yeah, and, and only 350 at Salem Stadium, which if you're a D3 fan who's watched the Stag Bowl before, you know what St- Salem Stadium looks like when it's full or mostly full uh, for the Stag Bowl. It, it, 350 would, would be pretty empty, and it kind of makes you wonder why do they play that game at Salem Stadium. You know, you could you could draw several thousand, I'm sure, on campus at Guilford, uh, Southern Virginia. Yeah, maybe I don't know there. what their support is like, but it, it's got to be more than 350 even when it's on campus. Probably true. Uh, Matt Pawlowski, I should mention, through his first three games, 73% passing, 14 TDs, no interceptions, 1,047 yards, and my time was up, except to say that he threw 308 passes last year, 24 TDs, three interceptions. Thanks, J.J. Nekoloff, for that text earlier this evening. That was very helpful information. He's uh, taken care of the football. What can you say? I'm talking about uh, Pawlowski, that is, not J.J. Yeah, I was like, that, that was a strange transition, but I knew what you meant. I just didn't want to go over the 40 seconds. I'm now real sensitive to that. That's good. Looking ahead to next week, because that's the part of the podcast that we are at now as we uh, wrap things up. <clears throat> Excuse me. One of the things that could happen next week, we'll know this again by the time the podcast comes out, but game day coming to Alliance Ohio, that could be a thing. And, you know, maybe no team in D3 has earned it more than the national attention, I mean, the potential attention from ESPN over the past 15 or 20 years than Mount Union. We'd certainly love to see them get it. But also, if you get a chance to get on ESPN, you, I, me personally, I would like to see D3 put its best foot forward, kind of like Amherst Williams. Mount Union Marietta, not a, not a real matchup where you, where you get excited about. 
there's not a game on this schedule next week that I would want to put on uh, ESPN. Not that the game is on ESPN, but you know what I mean. Um, you know, uh, if if you think Whitewater is going to have a great atmosphere, uh, they're off this week uh, coming up. Um, you know, Kane, Mary Harden, Baylor. We thought that game was great a couple years ago. Uh, Mount Union is hosting Marietta, as Keith mentioned. That's gonna, you know, it's been a good traditional rival, but Marietta hasn't been competitive competitive in a while. North Central goes to Wisconsin Stevens Point. Uh, Stevens Point did go to uh, they went to Cohen one this week, did they not? That might be interesting. And we have the Johnny Tommy game. I guess I shouldn't say that. Uh, if I, I would send a game day to St. Paul for the Johnny Tommy game. Gosh, and imagine if you know that's a great atmosphere in St. Paul, and that game's even probably even better atmosphere when it's in Collegeville. But yeah. that, that's, I think St. John's. I was trying to think about this. If I had to pick one place where I would want game day to show up this early in the season, we're not talking about rivalry week or you know a rivalry like Secretary's Cup, which would, it would just great visuals. Uh, St. John's would probably be it. Although I'd like to see it like a little bit, a little bit later in the season where they when the trees start to turn. Yeah, that would be beautiful uh, in Collegeville around week seven. And a rivalry game should not be played in week four. MIIC office. I've had this conversation. Uh, they don't really care for my opinion in terms of how they schedule, and I get that. Johns Hopkins at Muhlenberg. Now, that's a game that you know uh, always does look pretty interesting, but I think even more so this year. Yeah, well, Muhlenberg's just, just been pummeling people, and you know we we wrote a feature on on the quarterback and kickoff, and we said hey, he's probably gonna be pretty good. But this game, this game, all of a sudden is looking like you know maybe um, you know Muhlenberg could pull the upset, uh, and, and so now we got to pay pretty close attention to it. Another butt kicking by the mules. I could have said something else. Uh, this past week, they won at McDaniel, fifty nine to ten. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's probably a PG rated podcast. Um, Ithaca at Alfred. Uh, let's see, Lyco at Wilkes. Maybe Lyco can hold Wilkes to under one hundred snaps. Uh, who knows? Um, some of the other games, interesting ones uh, outside the top twenty five. Salisbury at Buff State. Buff State lost this week um, to Alfred, but uh, still in the uh, hunt. I would say in the Empire 8, especially if they can win this game coming up next week. Um, Ursinus takes its unbeatenness on the road to play McDaniel and should be in decent shape there. Uh, Stevenson Albright, we mentioned uh, Stevenson starts running that gauntlet here coming up. Uh, Delaware Valley against Lebanon Valley, the Battle of the Valleys, the Battle of the Vowels. I don't know. Um, you know, Lebanon, I, I, I'm remember, still trying to get over unbeatenness. Unbeatenness. Well, it's the podcast. That's the other rule. We make a word up, right? Every week. Unbeatenitude. Unbeatenness. How about Pacific Ism. at Chicago? <laughs> Pacific at Chicago. Keith, name the reason why this is interesting. Oh, you, uh, you're stumping me here. Oh. I rem- oh, come on. You can do this. Be- because Stag didn't coach at that Pacific. <laughs> it's so close, though, isn't it? <laughs> can, I, can, wait, can I get half credit for that? You can take half credit. <laughs> Yes, unfortunately, he coached at uh, College of the Pacific, which is now University of the Pacific, as opposed to Pacific University, which is the one that's going to play the University of Chicago. It's just interesting because it's kind of a halfway cross-country thing in the middle of uh, end of September for no particular reason. Um, we didn't talk about this game, uh, and uh, Concordia Moorhead's not playing anybody interesting this week, but Concordia Moorhead really took it to the Johnnies on Saturday. Yeah, and and uh, that's, that's another team that... 
that kind of gets stuck sometimes third or fourth in the conference in, in what was, you know, last season, especially was my, the Mayak was a very, very good conference. And so um, they've been on the outside looking in a couple of times. And, and this year, you know, with Bethel uh, getting stung early, although they look great on Saturday, beating St. Ola 40 to nothing. You, you wonder if the door is open a little bit now that, uh, that, that, that the Cobbers are beating the Johnnies. But we've seen the Cobbers beat the Johnnies before and then not necessarily turn that into a great season. Midwest Conference, the two teams predicted to uh, win their rep- respective divisions of the conference face-off this week as uh, Illinois College travels to St. Norbert. We already mentioned the Chapman-Whitworth game. That's a pretty big non-conference game, especially now that Whitworth remains unbeaten. Uh, Methodist goes to Christopher Newport. And, um, yeah, Hiram Worcester. That's a, that's a game of uh, different interest than it was a few weeks ago. Sure, sure. How about uh, also on, uh, down at that bottom part of the schedule, the Transit Trophy, WPI, RPI. I just like to mention random D3 trophies because nice. we know about those things. And, and what you can't just leave that in your head, right? The Transit Trophy has nothing to do with riding the train. And if you don't know what it is, Google it because we're out of time here on the Around the Nation podcast. Don't forget to stick around all week. We've got other things coming up. we got the Play of the Week, which will come out uh, probably a little bit later than first thing in the morning on Tuesday this week, but we'll still have it. Uh, Around the Region Columns Team of the Week presented by Scoutware. That is our weekly honor roll. Uh, You've already seen snap judgments from Ryan Tips, and you'll see uh, more Around the Nation from him. As the week progresses, he's Keith McMillan. I'm Pat Coleman. That's the Around the Nation podcast.